For those of you who don't know me, I am Dan Henley. I am here with my wife, Beth, who's right over here. And I uh, was, uh, grew up and was born twice in Ocala, Florida. Lived for many years on a farm south of town, which I just visited on Friday for the purpose of scattering my deceased sister's ashes in that place where she grew up. And then we had opportunity to be here for several days. Uh, I've been to Brevard County before. Uh, my wife and I met at Gainesville University of Florida. Uh, we uh, went to Reform Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and then God sent us to Melbourne and then Palm Bay, Florida, where I was pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church for a bit over 24 years and preached roughly 3,214 sermons. So. Today is number 3215 here in Brevard County, but it is the first in which I have been assisted by New City Church Tumblr. So that is very <laughs> exciting. Last time I was with this congregation was March 8, 2020. Anything happened since then? Nothing. <laughs> Yeah, March 8, 2020, uh, we managed to get home, uh, that was good, and then the world, our crazy world became all that much crazier and troubled and divided. So I thought at the beginning today, you know, break the ice with a joke. I thought about a joke about vaccines, but then I realized some of you won't get it. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that, I was a little concerned. I want you to relax, laugh a little bit. I enjoy uh, visiting our grandsons here because they, they like jokes, and, and they put up with, uh, with, with my jokes. See if, see if they or you get this one. What does a janitor say when he comes out of the closet? Supplies, that's right. <laughs> Supplies. That's one of my favorites. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's good to be back in Brevard for just a few days, but things here are always uh, changing. It seems that so much in our lives has changed since the COVID era and the new administration in D.C. as well. For many church people, I'm glad to see so many of you here. A lot of churches have suffered greatly in the last few years, and many people, their love for the Lord has, has grown cold. There may be some that aren't here anymore, but as much as things may feel that they have changed, in truth, the major things about our lives are actually quite the same as they were three years ago. And church is a place where we have to talk about relating the eternal world to the fluctuations of this life, but it is also a place where we must come together to center our souls and to find stability in what is always true. And we know the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures, what's that last word? Forever. Diseases come and diseases go. Freedom waxes and freedom wanes. Gas is high and gas is low. You're 80 cents better off than we are in Pittsburgh. I forgot to say that I am the pastor of North Park Church in the uh, suburbs of Pittsburgh now, and so that's where we've been for for 13 plus years, and you get an 80 cent break on your gas compared to, uh, to us, so appreciate that. You know, wealth is here today and then maybe gone tomorrow, but the word of our God, the word of our King, and the word of our Lord, it does endure and shall endure forever. Now, Floridians have never heard me 
despite my over 3,000 sermons, teach through the book of Romans. But I am doing it now in our church in Pittsburgh and loving it. Our congregation in Pittsburgh has been swimming in the convicting waters of Romans chapter 1 and 2 since before Easter. But there is a shift in the teaching of Paul that North Park Church won't get until September. I left our congregation hanging there, lost in sin and degradation for about a seven-week period until we get back after Labor Day and get back to to, to Romans. Uh, But I figured I would try out my beginning message when I get back to Romans on you Florida guinea pigs today and see how it goes, and I'll tweak it as necessary for when I preach it in Pittsburgh in September. So Romans 3, verses 21 to 24 will be our main text, and we will get there in a moment. But from the middle of chapter 1 of Romans to the middle of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us about the lost condition of humanity. He labors to show that Gentiles are lost and need a Savior, and that Jewish people are lost and need a Savior. He says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodly. You got that up there? You got people are looking up. There it is. Uh, All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, we read this, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. For his Jewish friends who thought that judgment was just for those rotten Gentiles out there, Paul had much to say to correct their bias and their pride. In Romans 3 verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jew and Gen- Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. My last sermon in Pittsburgh on this passage or in Romans was called Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion because it's all right there in Romans. Jew and Gentile, all sinners. <laughs> uh, there's equity, there's inclusion. Everybody's included in the useless and the unrighteous. We're all in that same camp. The apostle also has removed from us any hope of being rescued from our sin by our keeping of the law. That way, uh, obeying our way into God's favor, he says, is, is hopeless. Indeed, he reminds us that such a rescue was never the purpose of the law of God. Instead, it was given to show us our need by showing us our guilt. So you remember that when the law was given uh, to Israel on Mount Sinai, the very scriptures that record these commandments of a holy God also contained instructions for things like the Passover and like the atonement. God gave the moral law, but then he gives the law of substitution, which suggests that God always knew that we would fail to keep his good law. And you'll see that as we read our text for today, starting at verse 19 of Romans 3. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And this is what Paul has been leading up to in all that is covered in the first two and a half chapters. This, starting in verse 21 of Romans 3, is now the good news portion of the letter. It's the wondrous part, and I'm thrilled to be able to teach it here. A lifetime ago, I was a a fan of uh, Johnny Carson and The Tonight Show. If you're under 40, ask your parents about what that was all about. At 11.35 each weekday evening on WESH, Channel 2 out of Orlando, the band would play, and then Ed McMahon would come on speaking over the music, and he would announce the guests for the evening. And then at the end of announcing the guests, he would say, and now here's Johnny. You remember that? Oh, that was good stuff. As a basketball fan in the 1990s, uh, I would watch so many games out of Chicago, Chicago Stadium in the heyday of Michael Jordan and the dynasty of the Bulls. And the Bulls had this fantastic opening until all their games, they would play this super dramatic music and the lights would go on and off all around the stadium. And then the announcer would come on and say, and now stand and cheer for your Chicago Bulls. That's good stuff, too. Oh, the expectancy, the buildup. And here the apostle comes up with his own. And now. That's what he says. And now. Now can be a critical word. It announces that the time for something big has come. That is certainly the case here. And this is bigger than Carson. This is bigger than Michael Jordan. We will see what is introduced in verse 20. But but first notice that it is not and now. It is but now. This is one of those, uh, one of the big butts of Scripture. They highlight amazing contrast. My favorite may be in Ephesians chapter 2, which some of you have heard me teach on, where Paul has said that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, that we were by nature children of wrath. And then in Ephesians 2 verse 4, you get this incredible line, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How glorious is that? And in Romans 3, we have a but of similar glory. It's not a but God, but it's essentially the same. This is a but now. The force and impact, similar to the but God of Ephesians. And so is the context, because in Romans 3, Paul has shown us that we are not righteous, that we are not good, that we are not worthy, that we are all in big trouble due to our rejection of God. He strips us of any false hope that is to be found in religion, and just as we are despairing, he comes out with this, but now. Would you say those wonderful words with me? But now. A little louder. Come on. But now. One more time. But now. Okay, enough with the hype. Let's get to the substance that is here, and there is plenty of that. I said that what Paul introduces here is greater than Carson, greater than, uh, than Jordan. What is it? The but now leads to a righteousness, or the end now, leads to a righteousness that is from God. And Paul is saying that this righteousness is now 
revealed. It is now made manifest. Now, where have we heard that before? Well, we read it just a moment ago from Romans 1, where it says something else was revealed. There in verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is revealed. That's the verse that sets up our text for today. First, the wrath of God is revealed and explained. Now, two chapters later, the righteousness of God, which answers that wrath, is revealed and explained for us. So I hope you're ready to go there this morning and deep dive into the righteousness of God, which is revealed for us and offered to us. But first, we need to clear something up, something about the law that relates to that word now. Paul, in the same verse where he says now, which implies something new, he also says that this new thing should not be a surprise to us. You see that phrase that it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is a theme of the book of Romans. Uh, The second verse in chapter 1 offers the same thought, which is that the gospel of Jesus was promised and portrayed for us back in the Old Testament era when Moses and David and Isaiah were writing their scriptures. That phrase, we read the law and the prophets, has reference to the two divisions of the Old Testament scripture. The word law, sometimes, as in verse 20, may refer to the commandments specifically. At other times, as in verse 21, it refers to the scriptures. You may remember that wonderful story of how the resurrected Jesus joined his his two disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus, but he obscured his identity so that these two guys did not recognize him. And in that context, he listened to their distress and their despair over the crucifixion. And, And then in Luke chapter 24, he said this to them, "'Oh, foolish men and slow of heart.'" To believe in all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wow. What would that sermon be worth? All the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Jesus. Even in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve fell into sin, we find God saying to the devil... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. And this speaks of the coming of the Christ who would be wounded by the devil while dealing to Satan a death blow. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, the Lord tells Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Paul in Galatians tells us that this was fulfilled in Jesus And there was the near sacrifice of Isaac by his father, which was a picture of how God would one day give his only son for us on that identical mountain where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. And then we get all the ceremonial laws of Israel, those laws that point us to Christ as the Lamb of God, as the atoning sacrifice. In the Psalms as well, we have many great words that are about Jesus, Psalm 16 prophesies his resurrection. Psalm 22 describes his crucifixion. Psalm 23 depicts him as the great shepherd. Psalm 24 depicts or describes the ascension. And what about the prophets? So many passages with the greatest in Isaiah 53 where we read this. By the way, I'm reading the New Living Translation, which my wife took many years to talk me into using. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. 
We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Do your folks say amen? Amen. (laughs) That's an amen passage, guys. Yeah. So yes, it is. This righteousness from God was witnessed by the law and prophets. But now, Paul says, we understand it more fully. So time for us to grow in our understanding by working through what the apostle teaches right here in Romans 3 about the now revealed righteousness of God. There are three terms that can help us appreciate what this is all about today. Three terms. I got to remember today. Three words. Hopefully you remember something of what they... And by the way, if you run into other people at a restaurant today from different churches and you say, what did your pastor preach on? And they say, oh, he said we should be nice. You tell them, oh, the guy we heard taught us about justification rooted in an alien righteousness and then look kind of weird. And they're, <laughs> where did you go to church? But that's where we're going today. First word is alien. You know what a UAP is? Who knows what a UAP is? Oh, come on. You guys aren't paying attention It's an unidentified aerial phenomenon, okay? When I grew up, we called these UFOs, but now it's a UAP, unidentified aerial phenomenon. These are flying objects that are seen by military pilots and others that have a demonstrated capacity to do things that no aircraft created on Earth could do. We don't know what they are. We don't know from whence they have come. Are they from another country on this planet? Seems highly doubtful. Are they crafts from another planet or maybe even another galaxy? Huh. Intriguing idea. And about as plausible as any other explanation, I suppose. We humans are both fascinated and terrified by the idea of invading aliens, advanced life forms from other galaxies and other planets. Some think that UAPs, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, are indicators of UABs, unknown alien beings. Uh Uh-oh. The meaning of alien is what? Alien means it comes to us from somewhere else, okay? It is not native to us. Well, how does this relate to the gospel? It does because the righteousness of God means a righteousness that comes to us from God, from a source outside of ourselves. It is therefore alien. Now, many people don't, don't get this. They think Christians believe folks have to be intrinsically or qualitatively righteous in order to be right with God, but that's not our gospel. No, no. The gospel is about this alien righteousness that comes to us from heaven and qualifies us to sit at the Lord's table and to worship him and to know him, and we know the origins of this alien righteousness. It is that of Jesus. We did not keep the law. He did yeah. We did not live in perfect love. He did. We would never lay down our lives to please the Father. He did that. What does Jesus have that no other human has ever had? His own righteousness. Yeah. But praise be to God, he gives it to us. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that is saying that God the Father made the sinless one, Jesus, to be sin for us with the goal that we might become righteous. So stand in wonder at this. Christ had to borrow sin and borrow death from us. He had none of his own. But then there's the other side of the exchange. He gives us his life and his righteousness. We give him our death and our sin. This is the grand exchange. And it takes us to another key word, our second key word for today, which is imputation. So say that word with me, imputation. To impute means to ascribe or assign or accredit. This is the language of bookkeeping. Some people have credits. Some people have debits. Very good. Uh, in this spiritual universe, you and I are bankrupt, needy debtors. Jesus, however, has a surplus and abundance of moral credit. So the great transaction at Calvary is that he gets our debt, we get his credit. Double imputation. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he became sin and we became righteous. Jesus bears an alien guilt and suffers for it. We bear an alien righteousness, and we live because of that. Remember what we read from Isaiah 53, 4. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And so what is the result of all this? You and I are free. From our burden of guilt, that is taken away. What's more, we are clothed with a positive righteousness. So now, time now for a third word. So we got alien, we got imputation. Our third word is justification. And it is used several times in the third chapter of Romans. Probably good if we understood what that word means. Some help comes from the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Question number 33, ask... What is justification? And the answer says, do we have that? There you go. Justification. We should read this together. Let's do it. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And I implore you to have your entire family memorize that statement and understand that statement. It is so very rich. First, you see that justification is an act. It occurs in a moment, not over a period of time. Sanctification, the purifying of a believer's life, well, that, 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 and, and the behavior of a believer, that's a work of God. That's progressive, okay, but not justification. This is a judicial declaration similar to a marriage pronouncement or an adoption decree. It changes a legal reality. We are accepted and we are viewed now as righteous, and why is that? How can God do that? Because he imputes Christ's goodness, Christ's holiness, Christ's obedience to us. We are not just not guilty. We are absolute, actually righteous through Christ. This is grace upon grace. This is glory upon glory. And of all these realities, we will sing forever and ever. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood 
and righteousness. And when he will come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him. Pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. Surely we want to save some time today to sing of these glories, but we have more to see. Verse 22 speaks of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Now, faith and belief, it's the same thing. Same word, means the same thing. So twice there we are reminded that this gift of righteousness, it's not for every human being, but it targets those who believe in Jesus. You see that? Faith in Jesus, not obedience to the law, is where the apostle points us. Titus 3, Paul writes this, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. The same thing in Romans 3. In fact, he says this justification is apart from the law, apart from the law. But in a way, brothers and sisters, we are saved through law keeping. We are. We're saved through law keeping, just not our own law keeping. Jesus kept the law for us. Look at what he said in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Huh. Not abolish, but fulfill. And once that is done, we may become righteous, not through the law, but through Jesus, the righteous one. You see, when we say that we are saved, that we are justified by faith, we mean that we are saved by Jesus. Faith simply connects us to Jesus. Charlie Lindenberger's here. Somebody saw Charlie and said, that, that guy, he owned a power company, right? And I said, no, he owned an electric company. There's a difference there. He was just about conducting the electricity. You didn't make any, did you? No. <laughs> Say, but that's what faith does. It's about conducting. The power comes from Christ. It has, faith has no power of its own. It's not a work. It is not meritorious. Apart from Christ, faith is pointless and powerless. Now, John Stott is excellent on this point. He writes this, to say justification by faith alone is another way of saying justification by Christ alone. Faith is the eye that looks to him, the hand that receives his free gift, the mouth that drinks the living water. Stott quotes Richard Hooker who said, God justifies the believer not because of the worthiness of his belief, but because of the worthiness of the one who is believed. So it behooves us then, in the time we have left, to ponder the nature of true and saving faith. It is the focus of Paul in this section, as it is found in verse 22, and then in 25, and then again in 26. What is meant by that word? It apparently is not as obvious as it may seem. I hear your pastor is going to be going into the book of James. One of the things James says, he talks about a faith, a type of faith that does not save. It is a phony faith. So what a tragedy it would be to arrive at Judgment Day with a faith that is not genuine, not the real deal. So please understand that the faith that lays hold of Christ and his righteousness, it is a heart-level trust in Jesus, in his person, in his work, in his word. It is not just an intellectual assent to certain creedal or historical claims. It is heart-level trust that will, that must manifest in your conduct and in your affections. 
If you believe in this Jesus who died for you, surely you will love him. Surely, lacking that affection, lacking that devotion, any faith you profess is suspect at best. Does that make sense? And so this heart-level trust looks to Jesus as your sufficiency. So when the question is asked, why will God let you into heaven or what is your confidence on judgment day, your reaction is to point immediately to Jesus. Not to a single thing you've done or avoided doing, but to what he has done on your behalf. That is trusting him and him alone, okay? One more important point, and we are done. Look again at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No distinction. What's he mean? In context here, he clearly means that the same gospel exists for Jews and for Gentiles, no distinction. For the religious and the non-religious, no distinction. For the learned and the ignorant, for the rich and the poor, no distinction. Why? Because all have sinned. Remember, diversity, equity, inclusion, we're all in this group. Jew and Gentile, both equally guilty, all included among the lost. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the first verses I ever memorized in my life, and one of the easiest ones as well. Seems quite clear and simple, but I have met many Christians who seem to think that, well, Jewish people are under a different covenant. Brother in Pittsburgh told me once that Jews did not need to be born again. That was just for Gentiles. Some think God has uh, two plans of redemption going on in the world, one for Gentiles and another for Jews. Paul labors, labors to show us that is not the case. If we are right with God, acceptable to God, it is only because of his gift of redemption through Jesus. It's the only way because, again, all of us have what? Sinned. We were created to reflect God's glory, and we fell. We fell short. We all have that in common And the redeemed in glory will all have something else in common, won't we? Because we will be wearing the robes of Christ's righteousness. We will rejoice in the gift of faith. And we will sing of redeeming love forever. When we've been there 10,000 years, brighter, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Why is that? Because of the amazing grace that saves wretches like you and like me. If you've never looked to Christ by faith before, now is your moment. Turn to him in heart-level trust, confessing your total lack, his total adequacy, then join us to sing his praise, which we will do in a few minutes after we give thanks and prepare our hearts to share at the Lord's table. Let's go to the Lord. Our God, the very idea that we sinners would commune with you, a holy, pure, perfect God, blows our minds, and yet you have made a way for us in Jesus. We thank you today for justification, for pardoning our sins and making us righteous on the basis of a righteousness that is granted to us, imputed to us by the mercies and the perfections 
of Jesus. And so we would make in this, in this setting today, in this group, and we would make much in our hearts of Christ today. May we see him in all of his beauty and adequacy, even as we perceive and recognize our inadequacy and our failures and our corruption. Mighty King, come and wash us and renew our faith. Increase that faith as we partake of your body and remember your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.